San Francisco, and here on Clubhouse, it's The Good Time Show, bringing you today in technology. And now your hosts, Artie and Sriram. Wow, that's amazing. Steven, so grateful to have you here just for the music. It's so great. Um, oh, so now it's officially just for the music. I should just not say a <laughs> word. I'll just, don't mind me, everybody. The I'm going audio on mute. quality is spectacular. <laughs> I mean, you know how it is with Shrirams. Um, Yeah, welcome, everyone. Welcome to tonight's very special episode of The Good Time Show. This is a show we've been doing uh, pretty much uh, four or five nights a week uh, for the last few months. And we typically tend to cover tech, products, startups, culture, movies, fashion, all kinds of things. We have special guests. Uh, and tonight is going to be pretty historic and pretty special. Uh, Shriram, why don't you introduce the guests in the show? Awesome. Thank you. So uh, we have a very, very special uh, episode today. Uh, uh, you know, and unless you've been living uh, under a rock, uh, you've seen that Coinbase has had what is uh, not just, I think, an interesting day for them, uh, but a watershed day in uh, crypto and the internet uh, and uh, with broader implications. And we are so thrilled to have, uh, you know, some of, you know, some of the key players in the Coinbase story, the keyest players in many ways, joining us tonight. So without, without any further ado, let me introduce you to our all-star cast today. Um, we have uh, with us, uh, you know, a bunch of folks who have been involved with Coinbase uh, from the early days. Uh, we have uh, Dan Romero, uh, uh, you know, uh, you know, who's, who has a bunch of fun stories about Coinbase over the years. Uh, we have somebody a lot of our listeners would be familiar with, um, you know, a, a partner at Initialized Capital, Gary Tan, uh, who, you know, was one of the earliest uh, investors in Coinbase. Uh, we have uh, two of the people I'm very lucky to work with. Uh, uh, somebody who needs no introduction on this show, uh, Mark Andreessen, uh, you know, who's actually on the board of Coinbase, and we'll be talking to Mark as well. Uh, we also have uh, someone who's not been on the show yet, but uh, I am super thrilled to have one for the very first time, um, Katie Hahn. Uh, and Katie has an amazing backstory before she joined the firm. Uh, if you haven't, I highly suggest that you go check out her podcast with uh, Tim Ferriss. But she's been involved with Coinbase for many, many years, and we've been talking to Katie as well. Um, we have the uh, somebody who can be introduced by just his first name, Balaji. Uh, needs no more introduction beyond that, and has been an integral part of the crypto story. And arguably, you know, well, not arguably, the the two people at the center of Coinbase from the very beginning, uh, the two founders, uh, Fred Ursim and Brian Armstrong. So. First of all, I just want to say uh, we have never ever had it, done a show before where we had a company, um, you know, list go public and then be a part of the conversation the very same day. So I just want to thank all of you. Uh, it's such a privilege for us to host this uh, very unique, amazing conversation. And I know there is a tremendous amount of interest. I just want to thank all of you. And in order to kick us off, I want to start off with uh, Brian. Uh, first of all, Brian, you know, I have you know, no idea how we are still awake, how we are still sober. Uh, but let me walk me through just your emotions of the last 24 hours. How has all of this felt? Oh, man. Well, thanks for inviting me on here. And yeah, Fred and I just finished up a nice little celebratory dinner. Uh, we're going to be doing a nice celebratory dinner with the whole board next month. But what are, what are the range of emotions? You know, there's so much work that goes into becoming a public company. I think we've been working on this for the last year and 
our CFO, Alicia, deserves a big shout out here, kind of getting all of our control environment in place and all the accounting issues and the big four stuff that helped us get here and so many drafts of the S1. And so coming up to this, this moment, um, it, there wasn't really that much else to do except to wait. And the anxiety was kind of all consuming. I guess it, it took our attention away from building great products, which is what I normally want to be spending our time doing. And, you know, I didn't think it would be, I felt like, hey, this is just one more fundraise. You know, let's not celebrate anything. This is an opportunity to actually go build the next generation of the company and do amazing things. Never be complacent. It's always day one. Stay hungry and foolish. You know, all the all the things. Um, but because it was such a big moment in all the employees' minds and the early investors' minds, and um, so many people reached out to us, I think it's now a big deal in my mind. And I think it created this kind of big emotional landmark that we'll probably look back on as like a major chapter of the company. We're sort of turning the page to write the next chapter now. And I haven't fully processed it all. Um, you know, I'm not somebody who loves to be in crowds with surrounded by people. I'm kind of glad we had an opportunity to do this during COVID actually in a totally remote environment because I could feel the energy of the team and the world with all the buzz happening in Slack and Twitter and and everywhere, but I wasn't just surrounded by people making me like super uncomfortable. Um, so I was thankful for that. And I just tried to use it as a moment to, to thank everybody who helped us get here, reflect on it myself, take a minute to celebrate, which I don't naturally do. And then, you know, now I'm ready to uh, probably tomorrow get back to building. Thank you. And first of all, thank you so much for sharing that. Also sharing this moment with all of us and the thousands of people. Um, I want to get back to something which I think a lot of people have said today. Uh, which is today's feels historic. And of course, there is a company which is listing and going public. And I think we kind of understand the construct of that. But today feels much broader than just one company. So could you, and you know, this is probably a bit awkward for you because you're in the heart of it. And But could you talk about why today feels historic and momentous and what this means? Yeah, sure. I mean, look, so many people thought crypto was not only a terrible idea, they thought it was offensive. They thought it was a scam. You know, I've, many of the people on this call um, know this firsthand, but I remember we calling banks and having them hang up on us. Like we do not work with Bitcoin companies, you know, click and the, the receiver would, would go dead. Um, I remember talking to investors about this idea and having them, I, I realized after a minute, they were actually kind of laughing behind my back and making fun of me. Like, Oh my gosh, this guy really thinks Bitcoin is a thing. Right. Um, you know, the, a lot of my friends, even when we first started the company, I went around and told them, I was, I'm kind of interested in this Bitcoin thing. They're like, I don't get it, man. It, it doesn't make sense. So it's hard to uh, you know, overstate how bad of an idea everybody thought this was. And now it feels like this big legitimizing force where, the the bluest of the blue chips, you know, um, the CEOs of these banks that helped us go public, right, are calling us and talking to us about, hey, how do we integrate crypto into our systems? So it feels like a major shift in legitimacy, not only for Coinbase, but for the whole industry. Um, the government's taking it more seriously because of this. Um, Fortune 500 will take it more seriously because of this. Basically, crypto just feels like it's it's going to have a much better shot at becoming, you know, a major force in the world shaping the entire financial system of the future. Uh, I, I, I love that. Uh, and by the way, I, I also appreciate your, uh, you know, resistance to just hanging up on them when they call you back and going click on your end. But 
I, you know, I want to get, you know, the, one of the ways we wanted to structure the show tonight was we kind of wanted to, you know, do this in two parts. We want to spend the first half talking about the story so far, because I think it's fascinating. There are some super interesting characters. There are some, you know, some dark times and some good times. And then we want to spend the second part looking out ahead. So in terms of the story so far, I want to go back to the very beginning. And I want to actually go to both of you, Brian and Fred. Um, when was the first time do you remember hearing about Bitcoin, uh, Nakamoto, or, you know, um, you know, cryptocurrency at all? What was your earliest memory of hearing about this? Yeah, well, I'll start and then Fred, you should jump in. But I mean, for me, it was in 2010, um, around the end of the year. And I just happened to see the Bitcoin white paper show up on Hacker News when I was home with my family for the holidays. And um, I ended up reading that paper. I didn't fully understand it the first time, but something about it totally captured my attention. And I couldn't stop reading it. I couldn't stop thinking about it after. I reread it like maybe five times. And I was I had this thought like, wow, this might be something kind of like as impactful as the Internet a new global decentralized protocol, but you know, for, for moving money around was even more exciting to me in some ways, because I was like, maybe this could create more freedom in the world. And that just really spoke to me um, in a way that nothing I'd read in a long time had. So that kicked me off on the journey in 2010. That's, that's awesome. Um, I, you, you had this fun little story and I wanted you to share it here. How, how did you both meet uh, Brian, Fred, um, uh, how did it all get started? Just uh, your early meeting and all of that. Yeah, Fred, you should you should tell this and maybe talk about your first crypto ex ex awareness as well. Yeah, if this is a romantic comedy, this is the meet cute <laughs> moment. Our eyes locked across the room at uh, the cafe in San Francisco, something like that. Fred, you, you tell it. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Um, yeah. Well, what's what's the real story? Basically, like met on the internet, um, found Brian through a Reddit post of a Bitcoin wallet prototype. Um, and yeah, maybe just to go back to how I, how I originally found crypto. I was a trader at Goldman in New York at the time. Um, in high school, I was a semi-professional video game player and that was the most fun thing I'd ever done in my life. So I figured, okay, well, it would be awesome if I could do something like this, but have it be a legitimate career and being a trader seemed like the closest I could get to that. Um, so here I am at Goldman. Um, it turns out the game isn't very much fun. Most people are miserable. Um, so I'm kind of bored and intellectually starved. And after work, I go searching on the internet for good ideas, stumble across Bitcoin on a Georgetown professor's blog in 2011. Um, and I think I was just really lucky in that I had the right uh, predispositions to get it at the time. I did computer science in undergrad. Um, like I said, I spent literally thousands and thousands of hours in virtual worlds in high school. Um, you know, a lot of World of Warcraft in there where there's literally uh, digital gold in the game. Um, and then, I, you know, as a foreign exchange trader watching the European debt crisis uh, unfold, trading the euro every day as the IMF is bailing out all these countries. Um, so it just really clicked. Um, and then, yeah, fast forwarding, you know, I, I was personally messing around with crypto on the side nights and weekends, probably for about a year, year and a half. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden I see this prototype that Brian posts on Reddit. And I'm like, hey, this is, this is a pretty good product. And by the way, at the time, um, crypto services were awful. Mm -hmm. The best way you could buy Bitcoin was literally... Um, 
wiring money as a random consumer to a highly unstable exchange called Mt. Gox in Japan at the time, yep. which famously went under with hundreds of millions of dollars of customer money. Um, or you could go through these really sketchy um, kind of payment processor middlemen to try to get to some other exchanges. So I, basically I saw Brian post his prototype and uh, it was pretty good. It was like, wow, this is a real Silicon Valley consumer experience. Um, so emailed, we met up. Um, well, Brian, yeah, what, uh, maybe you can describe the, what the actual question was, which is what, uh, what was the first meeting like? Yeah, well, we were kind of sizing each other up. We were at the, <laughs> this little coffee shop, which no longer exists near the Caltrain station in San Francisco called the Creamery. Oh, wow. And, uh, I love that place. We used to, we used to, we used to like, <laughs> like next door, historic. Yeah, it's, it is historic, I guess. Um, I think it no longer exists, but yeah, Fred and I met up there and we were kind of trying to size each other up. We were a little guarded. Um, but the creamery should have taken equity separately. That would have been a great business. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and we eventually kind of opened up. You know, we were like, we, I, I think what I realized about Fred was this guy is super driven. He wants to change the world. He wants to do something important, which I, I did too. Uh, we had a chip on our shoulder a little bit. And um, he also was really sharp. Like, I, I really actually, you know, I realized this more as we started to work together. I think after that sort of quote unquote first date at the, the creamery, we then went to a Bitcoin meetup together to kind of check that out. Then we tried working together for, I think, probably two to four weeks, something like that. And what I noticed immediately about Fred from that first meeting and just working with him was, number one, he was kind of intimidating. And I mean that in a good way. He, I, I was afraid of saying something stupid around him, basically. And I was... You know that's a good sign. I think in hindsight, you want someone who is really can challenge you and can point out mistakes that you're making, and and you know you can learn from them. It's it, it's true, like a true partnership. Um, there was even instance I remember when we were kind of working on the first version of the buy Bitcoin feature in that first month we worked together, and I remember Fred came to me one day and he's like, "I'm pretty sure we're losing money on every single sale of Bitcoin," and I was like, "How could that be? That that's not possible." And he walked mm -hmm. me through. The flow of funds and the, everything, and he and he was absolutely right. And so, well, just, was, and just just to describe the <laughs> hilarity of this for a second, <laughs> the whole business model is help people buy Bitcoin. The way that was being done at the time, I'll never forget this. Brian literally, like once every three days, pulls up an exchange and just places one giant market ripping order. <laughs> to, to to backfill the last three days of customer That's orders, awesome. which number one is Brian. I love you, man, but is the worst execution strategy possible. <laughs> and two, we of course, like as the company works, Bitcoin is generally working and the price is going up. So you're literally buying um, three days later from where the customer bought. And you're like, you're losing money because the price is just going up constantly. Um, so anyway, sorry yes. to blow you up there, Brian, but it, that was, that was like a huge WTF moment. It's very but, funny but in retrospect. This is also a non-trivial problem to solve, right? Later yeah. with the hedger and so on. Yeah. Yeah. At this time, maybe like 15% of Mt. Gox's, uh, volume, something like that. It was like a non-trivial percentage of volume and market orders. That's fascinating. I, I never heard that story. It was a it was a lot, and then I mean maybe we'll get to this later. But um, at some point we got we just 
thought that risk was just unacceptable, um, both for Coinbase mm-hmm. and having this huge Mt. Gox counterparty, which obviously went down, mm-hmm. um, but also just for the ecosystem. I mean, a huge. At some point, we realized if this if if Bitcoin is really going to work, then it needs to be able to go institutional, and that means having a high quality exchange that could service that demand, which led mm-hmm. to the creation of an exchange in twenty early twenty fifteen later on. You know, I, I don't think most people actually understand the difference between a brokerage and an exchange. I did not understand it until getting into crypto. Mm-hmm. Maybe you guys want to talk about that or something. Wait, wait, wait. wait. Before we get into that, I want to kind of hear like, just the story <laughs> just a little bit. Um, because we're still here. You know, Brian is still, you know, um, pulling a, you know, doing a, placing a manual uh, trade every few days, which, by the way, the company is still operating that way. That would have been fascinating reading in the S1. Um, so walk me through the early years and walk me through, you know, um, you know, first of all, getting into Y Combinator, uh, early fundraising and the early days of finding your footing as co-founders and the early days of the company. I have a funny story that I finally unearthed, um, only recently, um, about Brian and, uh, actually a, a recommendation letter that we got from Jason Tan at SIF Science. So SIF Science, which is, a great startup, um, you know, anti-fraud platform, um, you know, Airbnb by then was the like keystone, like most important customer for this anti-fraud platform. And, um, Jason wrote us, uh, an email at Y Combinator talking about how, you know, great news for YC, horrible news for SIF science, but all in all, you know, for the best. Brian, uh, you know, being anti head of anti-fraud or, you know, working on anti-fraud at Airbnb, mm-hmm. um, you know, he was the best customer. Like he was the guy who was actually implementing all of the SIF science APIs for anti-fraud at Airbnb. And, uh, this, the key story that I remember was that Brian would stay up until 2 AM debugging this external anti-fraud platform with the founder of SIF science. And, um, that immediately like, I, I, the second I read it, I went into our internal system and it's like, we're interviewing this guy. Uh, <laughs> like we have to interview because anyone who stays up until 2 a.m. and you don't have to, and like for the love of the job of like coding and building amazing systems, like that's exactly mm-hmm. the kind of person who could build I, Coinbase. <laughs> I love that. Okay, Brian, before you answer and talk about YC, I want to play you a piece of audio. This is going to sound really terrible from my phone. But from a video you posted today. I'm not sure how much of you could hear, but this is a video Brian posted uh, today to his YouTube channel, uh, which is him practicing not the actual pitch, but the practice for his YC demo day uh, pitch. Brian, what do you remember from that those days and your early fundraising? Yeah. Oh, man. By the way, just on Gary's comment real quick, um, just technically, I was not head of anti-fraud at, at Airbnb, although I was working on it. There, were, there weren't really heads of anything, I guess, at Airbnb at that point. And um, part of the reason I was working on it at 2 a.m. was I, I just liked to stay up late and I had no social life. But anyway, beyond beyond that, <laughs> what, so what were, what, were the, um, what were those things like in the early days? I mean, I posted that pitch video uh, of me practicing how to pitch to investors at, at Y Combinator because I don't know, it wasn't very polished, right? Um, I mean, even the video I, I posted actually, it, it comes out okay, but that was probably the second or third iteration of it. I just wanted people to see that and think, 
I could do that. You know, it's not that hard. Um, I think when people look at companies after they're successful, it seems unattainable because you're like, oh my gosh, there's thousands of employees and it's billions of dollars of revenue. And like, I've never even generated $10 of revenue. How would I generate billions? And I was kind of in the same boat back then when I was practicing that pitch for Y Combinator. I mean, I had never managed anybody. Okay. I had never, um, I had started, I'd tried to do a startup previously, but it basically failed and I, it wasn't that successful. And so, you know, from these humble beginnings, like people can, you just need to start, just get started. And then that'll create learnings and you can, sometimes it'll work. Sometimes it won't. If it doesn't go try 10 more things, you know, try 10 other business ideas. And so anyway, I wanted to post that like humble beginnings. That's great. I mean, these are, I think the stories that really inspires, uh, uh, next generation founders and just people to just go take chances and just try something new. I, I love it. Um, Gary, I want to come to you because this is what I think you kind of show up in the story a little bit. Um, um, you give them an application score of infinity. Um, and also, you know, um, you know, uh, you know, uh, by the way, you should check out Gary's video on this, you know, um, you know, obviously invested in Coinbase too. Walk us through your experience meeting, you know, Brian, Fred and the Coinbase team at that time. What did you think? I mean, the coolest thing to me was that, um, he had actually built something, you know, I think the number one thing that uh, I learned at Y Combinator watching and reading thousands of applications was that, you know, everyone has an idea. And, you know, the ideas sort of come in bunches. And then the thing to really pay attention to is when the idea is right. And um, you can look at a demo, you can look at code, you can look at product, you can evaluate the product and see um, the craftsmanship of it. And, you know, I think that that's just really, really what Brian did super well. You know, he'd made bitbank.is. It was running, you know, he was sending Bitcoin to people. And um, that, you know, I think that, you know, that's sort of embedded in Fred's story too. Like, I, you know, I think this is a Silicon Valley story or a tech story, you know, that I think a lot of people should pay attention to because it has all the right value set in it, right? Embedded in it is you know, yeah, yeah, talk, talk all you want, you know, be excited about technology and, you know, all of, all you want. But what really matters, the true magnet is, let's look at the product, let's look at the you know engineering of it. Let's see how it is made. If it is well made, it will be a magnet and you will attract incredible co-founders like Fred, you will attract incredible, you know, people like the early yeah. team at Coinbase, like Balaji. Um, yeah, and you will in attract incredible investors like, you know, Chris and Mark and Katie, mm -hmm. and you know, you'll, you'll attract like incredible employees like Dan. I mean, it's just such an incredible magnet and it comes back to building. Mm -hmm. I love that. Um, okay. So, you know, Fred talked about, you know, I want to come back to some of this because you mentioned Dan, we're going to come to Dan, um, but you mentioned, you know, early investors. So Mark, uh, you know, and you kind of have a proxy for Chris here, a couple of questions for you. When was the first time you remember a hearing about Bitcoin? and Satoshi Nakamoto. And second, uh, what was your first reaction when uh, you heard about Coinbase itself? Actually, I even I don't know the story, though I work with you guys. Yeah, and I should start by saying, you know, we're, we're lucky tonight to be joined by Katie, who, um, you know, who was very involved in the company, actually, you know, well, well before she joined us, but has been on the board for a long time, um, lo much longer than I have, by the way. And then um, also Chris Dixon, who's not here with us. Um, I'm sorry, hold on. My headphones, my I put my uh, headphones are picking this exact moment to crap out. Oh, just good. one second. I'm pretty sure Mark was about to 
sing the praises of Chris Dixon, who he was, was really, like, I can do that. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> Many of us can do I, that. I can do that. And Chris would be with us, except he's yeah. on East Coast time tonight, Sri Ram, as you know. Um, I know. Sorry. Sorry. I know. It's hard. Yeah. Um, well, Mark, are your headphones working no. again? Because I'm happy to, to, to sing the praises of Chris. I mean, um, yeah, go ahead, please. And I'll, I'll yeah, pick up. But, yeah. I mean, look, Chris is also just like Brian and Fred are true visionaries in crypto. I think, you know, that's true of Chris Dixon. Chris lives and breathes this stuff and he has from the early days, right, Mark? I mean, yeah. um, you go back and I, I was actually looking at Chris's original blog post, um, he, he told me the other night, he's like, it's called why I love Bitcoin <laughs> or something like that. But, um, you know, this is something that he believes in so deeply. And I think one of the reasons, um, Brian and Fred, that you guys resonated so much with Chris um, is he also just believes in the benefits, the societal benefits that this technology has. Yeah, I loved his blog, too. Um, Chris has some really amazing writing out there, actually. A bunch of it got compiled into an ebook that I think is like three dollars on Amazon or something. It's it's worth uh, it's worth reading. It's a common theme here, actually. Mark had a the P Mark archives <laughs> had a lot of good stuff. You know, Paul Graham had a bunch of his writing online. Fred Wilson had a bunch of writing online about crypto early yeah. on. I, there's something about that that really helped me understand those people and felt like I knew them before I'd ever even met them. Yeah, 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 exactly. So. So yeah, look, I, I was super lucky in that I was surrounded by by Chris, and also you know our our, our friend and former partner Balaji is here also, who was who was really helping to kind of spin us up um, on, on all this stuff around, around the same time. Um, so you know you you always kind of you know these things you always kind of, you know see these things, and, it, and if you're in the venture business, you know you you see a lot of these things, you see a lot of you know people with with dreams and ideas. Um, and so you know I would say like the the two kind of humbling parts for me, one would just be like hearing about Bitcoin for the first time. So I'm old enough that I remember the earlier uh, attempts to do online currencies, uh, digital currencies. And uh, if you go back far enough, you actually go, you can actually go all the way back to the 80s um, with a guy named uh, Dave, uh, David Chom, who uh, created uh, actually the, the forerunner technology for a lot of this. And then uh, had a company at a company in the 90s where he tried to productize it uh, called, I forget, DigiCash or CyberCash. Um, at the time, and then um, which, which unfortunately didn't work out. And then there were there were a bunch of other kind of virtual currency startups in the late '90s um, <laughs> that I remember quite well um, uh, that, uh, that 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 didn't work. And so th th this is one of those things. You know, I, I talked about this in other forums in the past, but this is one of those these ideas. Bitcoin was one of these ideas where the idea itself wasn't new. Mm -hmm. um, like the idea of a digital currency um, was not itself new. In fact, Milton Friedman, the famous economist, used to talk about. Kind of the, the inevitability of this kind of idea. You know, Neil Stevenson wrote a book called Cryptonomicon, where he basically uh -huh. forecasted something much like this. So the idea itself was not new and had been tried and had failed many times before. And I think that's one of the things that really confused people about Bitcoin and continues to confuse people about Bitcoin, which is like there is this track record, there's this like 30-year prehistory and these attempts that didn't work. But you know, the thing that became clear, and, and I would say biology in particular kind of helped me understand uh -huh. this. The thing that became clear was Bitcoin was a legitimate computer science breakthrough. Right. It wasn't just like a proposal for a new kind of currency or a new kind of whatever transaction processing system. It was like a legit computer science breakthrough uh, with the blockchain and with distributed consensus and with what's called the, the, you know, the solution to what's called the Byzantine generals problem. Um, and so it was like a, it was a fundamental advance in computer science at a, at a really critical time. Um, and so as soon as I figured that out, I was like, OK, you know, now now it's more in my world. Like now now I can really wrap my head around this. Um, and um, and so that, you know, that that when we figured that out, that, that kind of mapped it to kind of the, the, the world that we understand. Um, 
And the Coinbase itself, you know, it, it was always impressive for all the reasons that the people have talked about already. But, you know, there were a couple of things. So one is like there, there was a critique very early on in our discussions where I remember it's almost like, is the idea almost too obvious, right? Which is it's like, okay, <laughs> like how about a website to let people buy and sell Bitcoin, right? Like, yeah, that seems like a good <laughs> idea, right? Oh, and we've talked about like, you know, another, again, another thing we've talked about, we, or we talk about in the firm a lot is like, we kind of, we, we specialize in what we, we, uh, we think of as ideas that look like bad ideas that turn out to be good ideas. And this, this was one where it kind of threw us because it's like, wow, it just look, like, looks like a good idea. And the, the problem with things that just like look like good ideas out of the gate is that, you know, they're often too obvious, which means they'll just draw, they'll simply draw too much competition. Like hmm. there'll just be too many companies that are going to try to do the same thing. And then the market will fragment, you know, and then you'll have like market share spread across 50 companies and there, there won't be any one company that really is a big, you know, kind of a, a big winner out of it. Um, but then what we kind of realized, and I think this was, you know, what Brian and Fred realized and kind of educated us about was it's like, well, actually, this is <laughs> actually this is not so freaking obvious. Right. Um, and number one, it's just because like, look, Bitcoin's not that obvious. Um, right. As shown by the fact that, you know, most, you know, look, most venture capitalists have still not invested in Bitcoin. Right. right. Much less, you know, most institutions or most individuals in the world. And so like Bitcoin itself and cryptocurrency itself is not is not actually that obvious. And then what it actually takes to build something like Coinbase is actually not that obvious, and you know they they touched on the just the banking topic alone was one of those things, um, but you know they're they're I'm sure these these guys could take you through a thousand other things they learned along the way uh, that were not that obvious. And then on top of that, it's like okay, what else to do? Like how to surround, you know, kind of the, the original service with all, all the things the company does now. You know, also not obvious how to like deal with all these different kinds of customers, how to go international, how to have regulatory compliance, how to like you know it just oh, by the way how to have a company that's both conservative enough to be like in the clear from a regulatory standpoint, <laughs> but also still ferociously innovative, right? And still able to like, you know, have the kind of culture that's able to continuously develop new innovations in a, in a, in a space where, the, where there is intense regulation. And so it actually turned out like there was just like tremendous depth and richness to how these guys were thinking about it. And, you know, once, once we figured that out, then that, that made the decision easy. I, I love that story. Um, you mentioned Balaji and I want Balaji, I want to go to you. Um, now, I think, all of us know of your uh, passion and enthusiasm for all things crypto, and we're going to talk about that. But actually, a story which even I don't know, I think, is when was the first time you heard about Bitcoin? And what was your first emotional or intellectual reaction to it? And what got you hooked? Yeah, so, you know, after the financial crisis, I was thinking a lot more about, you know, the root operating system, because when something fails, it's like a noisy you know, a leaky API, right? And so like the nature of money and how banking worked and all this stuff, I was getting into that. And it was in 2010, 2011, I, don't, I should look back at my, you know, records for emails whatever for the exact first time. But I remember actually talking with Patrick Friedman and a few other folks about Bitcoin very early on. And um, I was interested in it because I was interested in like an absolute price for things. That is to say, if you could price things in jewels, J-O-U-L-E-S, like imagine an iPhone and imagine like doing the molecular assembly, like the lanthanum and rare earth elements all coming out of the ground and just whoosh like this assembling in your hand, right? How much energy would it take to actually do that? And as that reduces over time, you've advanced as a civilization, right? So I thought that the absolute price of something would be in like energy terms. And so, you know, when Bitcoin, came, that was just something I'd like written up as an essay. I should publish it probably at some point. Like that was 10 years ago. And, um, when Bitcoin came, uh, you know, I, I was interested because it violated some of my thinking. For example, in everywhere else in, in computer science, the more 
computers you throw at something, the more performance there is, right? It's all about horizontal scalability, you know, partitioning of databases, etc. And Bitcoin wasn't like that. It got more security. So I dug into it. And when I really actually got conviction on it was after it came back up from the crash in 2011, because it came all the way down from 32 to 2, and most things don't come back from something like that. When it started creeping back over, up over the course of 2011 and 2012, I got heavily into it. And in fact, I taught a course at Stanford starting in late 2012, early 2013, where Bitcoin was one of the things. And that was how I got into it. And actually, I think it was Jan 2013, Brian, that I first met you and Fred. I think that's right. Yeah, well, that sounds right. Uh, Brian, I have to ask, what was your first impression of Balaji when you met him? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I, um, you know, it was, again, it was intimidating, but in a different way, because he, he talked across the, such a wide range of topics where, and he would, he had this uh, sort of quirk where he would say, um, uh, have you heard of blank? And he'd fill in like some very obscure thing, like, like 17th century, like, you know. Treaty of Westphalia. <laughs> yeah, Treaty of Westphalia or whatever. And, and he would pause for a second and I would have to keep saying, no, I don't know what that is. And I, I'm, I'm used to being, you know, I like to think of myself as a reasonably smart person. And I had to say no like 10 times in a row, and I just felt dumber and dumber every time. But really, I mean, it was like so fascinating to keep up with him. By the way, I just want to give a big shout out to Biology. When he came into Coinbase, um, we acquired Earn.com. And not only did Earn turn out to be a really great revenue generating business for us, but Biology um, unblocked this uh, major issue we had in the company that nobody had been able to unblock to date, which was how we were adding new assets to the platform. And so... He ended up generating actually a ton of value at Coinbase because of that. So um, awesome. big, big shout out to Balaji. And your, the original talk I saw you give at um, Y Combinator Startup School about, you know, Silicon Valley's greatest exit. I remember watching exits. that and thinking, yeah, exits. I was, I was like this, that was like one of the best talks I'd ever seen in my life. And I was like, I, I would love to work with this guy someday. So that was cool. Was uh, I, I just want to point out something, uh, which maybe, uh, obvious but not always listeners it is not often when you have co-founders and people long time involved in the company after a decade and still not really on talking terms but also getting along well with each other that is not common but it seems to actually happen here so that is very notable <laughs> yeah i don't know what is this? i don't know why that happened but <laughs> for fred and i i mean we had executive coaches and stuff and we you know we did the whole couple therapy thing but um i don't know dan what do you 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 saw all this happen do you have any yeah I think there was a magazine article my first year where they described you guys as Swiss Vulcan bankers. And having worked for both of you directly, I think that there's some merit to that description. But I, th I think both of you are highly logical and truth-seeking to maybe a fault sometimes. And ultimately, if, if you can work with that API interface, um, you can work well with the two of you. And, and I think you both have matured. But uh, for the first couple of years, if, if you weren't kind of on that page, and it obviously worked for the two of you, I, I think a lot of people might have found you hard to work for. Dan, I actually wanted to come to you next, right? Um, because I think, you know, you, you know, we kind of covered the early, you know, the very, very origin of Coinbase. But then this has been like people like you uh, into the story. Uh, Brian had a great tweet from today, and he talked about you with a passport and a suitcase going around Europe trying to figure out uh, how to get any bank to work with you. Talk to us about that time and then talk to us about the dark days, the crypto winter, what do you want to call it, of circa 2014 to 2017 and how it was to live through that. 
Sure. So I'll keep the answer on the banks short and hopefully the crypto winter a little shorter. But so we've talked about Coinbase's original business model and, and still core to the business today is allowing individuals to safely and easily convert fiat to Bitcoin and, and vice versa. I, I, I think that if you think about that, handling Bitcoin is pretty straightforward. The protocol and, and software are open source. And more importantly, it's permissionless. And if you think about banks, they're the complete opposite. Everything's closed source, and you have to get their permission to use their rails to move fiat currency. Um, I'm pretty sure Coinbase and Brian and Fred, please correct me, had the standard uh, out-of-the-box bank relationship that you get from YC. And in 2012, Bitcoin was unregulated. So as Fred pointed out, World of Warcraft gold, Bitcoin, basically the same thing. So no one really cared about it. And then in 2013, something happened with the kind of primary anti-money laundering regulator in the U.S., FinCEN, said that virtual currency exchangers, aka Coinbase, are now subject to money service business regulations. You have to follow anti-money laundering rules. You have to build a compliance team. And that was something Coinbase took seriously and, and kind of went forward and built out a whole infrastructure and still has that today. But a wrinkle there is that money services businesses are like the least um, appealing customers for banks. They basically require a ton of work and don't make them that much money. And so when that happened, Coinbase went from being kind of just like a normal tech company to no bank wanted to work with you. And, and you know, Brian and Fred did a really nice job for the first two years to really keep the relationship with the bank that they kind of had uh, had prior to the regulatory oversight. But when I joined in 2014, we didn't have a bank in Europe and we're looking for one. And to go to Europe and find a bank after you're already a money service business. And, and in Europe, there was no regulation for Bitcoin. So it basically just seemed super scary. Uh, I, I had to spend a good chunk of the summer there. Actually, I think Nick Shalik was in the room earlier today. He, he was at Ribbit and he, he helped uh, introduced me to a bunch of different folks. And one thing came to another, and I ended up in Estonia, which I don't know if you guys know Estonia, it's like a really small country right next to Russia. Um, and they had a bank that was kind of forward thinking. Uh, I think one of the co founders of Skype uh, kind of plugged in there. And so they, just generally as a, as a country and Balaji can talk to you to, mm -hmm. until you're blue in the face about Estonia is uh, pretty, you know, technologically progressive. But this small little bank in Estonia actually had access to the euro um, clearing. And so it's like almost like finding a bank in Rhode Island or Delaware, and you now have access to U.S. dollar clearing. Mm -hmm. We had our bank in Estonia, and, and then we were kind of off the races in Europe. Okay. So now talk to us about crypto winter and the dark days. And you were a part of, I mean, you, were, you, you lived through it, you know, as kind of a key uh, exec at the company. How was it to live through? Well, I think exec is a little bit of an overstatement. Part of it was, you know, we lost look, about a third of the employees. We look, lost about trust me, you know, today is feeling... like, you know, um, you know, uh, 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 everyone gets to take credit for Coinbase's success. Okay, <laughs> well, I'm just going to say it was kind of like being on a battlefield and a third of the, the battlefield is now gone. And so you get kind of field promoted to being an exec because that's that's just what happens when everyone starts to leave the company. Still, still die, counts, baby. Dan. Yeah. Still counts. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but anyways, so uh, I think the the tough thing about the winter was you, you we never lost the kind of focus on the mission, and I give a lot of credit to Brian and, and Fred on that. 
you know, a lot of the companies in the crypto space pivoted to enterprise blockchains. There was a whole meme around like, oh, Bitcoin's not interesting, but the blockchain is really cool, which of course, if you know anything about crypto, that doesn't make any sense in the abstract. Um, but I think what, what was the hardest part about that winter is when everyone joined in 2014. So I, I joined like employee 20 and we got up to 60 people. And then it just felt like the air came out of the balloon and everything we tried for 2015 and most of 2016, nothing made the numbers move. It just kind of like everything was flat. And, you know, you, you're in Silicon Valley, you're looking to join a company that has growth and it feels like it's up and to the right. And uh, in some ways, like down is even better than flat. Like flat is just boring. And, and it's that period that I think a lot of people kind of just lost faith. And the group that stuck around at Coinbase really ended up being the people who were a partly probably stubborn, but more importantly, I think there because they really ideologically believed in what Bitcoin and then later Ethereum, which ended up being, a, I think, a really pivotal moment for the company um, meant for the world in the long term. Um, it, it, so, uh, Katie, I want to kind of bring you in here. Um, you know, uh, you know. So, it, it, this I think you've been involved with uh, Coinbase for a long time, and this is when you know you got involved more formally with the company. From your vantage point, as you know, somebody you know involved as an investor before that, how was that to experience, and what you know, uh, how, what were your observations from that era? You mean from the crypto winter era, the next yeah, crypto from the winter crypto era? winter, you know, um, and then leading into well, I guess the spring or the summer. I don't know what the right term is. Yeah, but we have all of those terms. But I think actually the thing is, I actually got to know Coinbase um, when I was still working in the U.S. federal government. Um, and I, I was reflecting on this. You know, I easily could have fallen victim to some of the myths about crypto circulating around the time. Um, you know, we were hearing things like, uh, well, one of the things that was going on in the government at the time was, you guys probably remember this, when the IRS subpoenaed every customer account um, of every customer that had ever done business mm. with Coinbase. Um, and, you know, to Brian and Fred's credit, although they were certainly following all the regulations and even doing a lot of self-regulation, they actually fought back uh, on that IRS subpoena case because the supposition was basically that all Coinbase customers were somehow criminals. Um, and, and one of the interesting things I discovered, I was working in the U.S. Attorney's Office at the time, was our U.S. attorney, our Senate-confirmed head U.S. attorney, had a Coinbase account, which was <laughs> such an interesting discovery. <laughs> um, also, I, one of the other things that stood out kind of early in those days dealing with Coinbase when I was actually at the government before I ever joined the, joined the company, joined the board, was, you know, I noticed that whenever we would send out process requests to, you know, in connection with like Mt. Gox investigation or other kind of hacks... Um, you know, Coinbase always responded much faster than any other large bank with records that were actually helpful to the government. And so kind of seeing some of these things early on, I realized quickly, like, these kind of myths we hear about the crypto space are just that. They're really just myths. Actually, um, Coinbase was, you know, very engaged with the government in a positive way, I think. So actually, that's how I got to know the company. That's how I got to know Fred and Brian. Um, and then the early days of the board, I mean, I joined in 2017. So just before, I guess you would call that, call that the spring, um, before the summer 
and then there was another winter. Uh, and, and and kind of what you just said, Dan, about you know the the flat um, kind of keeping employees motivated, also just for recruiting. Um, you know, there was a lot of turnovers in those days. Um, but as Dan, you just said, the people who stuck around mm-hmm. um, really did so out of kind of a deep sense of mission, which was which was great to see. It, it, Brian, I was watching your uh, uh, that's so awesome, Katie. And by the way, Katie. Uh, and her, uh, you know, her, her story with the Justice Department is just so fascinating. I highly recommend uh, going reading up her history and especially her podcast with Tim Ferriss. Uh, you know, just one of the most interesting people I've ever worked with. Um, Brian, I was watching your YouTube st- uh, stream today with Mark, and you were talking about how the crypto winter, you know, you know, almost kind of like hardened you or shaped you. And you tried to avoid swearing on the stream, but saying like, you know, we're going to effing do this or die trying like how was that for you as a leader how did that change you yeah totally well i think a lot of employees and executives and founders have experienced this which is you know you go into you're, you're in a bad situation maybe somebody has just quit or you just got some bad numbers back or you're just you're just really worried and then you have a moment where you got to go in front of the team or in front of the whole company and kind of put on a good face Right. And go up there and, and try to, and, you know, you know, gear, gear yourself up to go give some kind of an inspirational moment. And I realized I, as I was trying to do this, I was carrying all this weight on me and it actually wasn't coming across authentic. And so I had to figure out a way during these moments to actually, you know, be more real and more authentic and go in there and say, you know what, let's take an honest look like this stuff's not going that well. This thing is not going that well. But I think we can find a way through it. So let's get a group together. And I want to hear ideas from everybody about what we can do to make this better. It's not like the the weight of the whole company is resting on my shoulders, right? So that was a moment for me as a leader. I had to learn how to be a little bit more vulnerable in front of the the company. And, um, you know, I didn't, I didn't want to just go up there and like put a litany of compl- a list of complaints or just cry and, you know, sob in front of the company without at least coming back and saying, let's create a plan. Like, don't, don't just be up there listing problems, like have a solution, but it can come from everybody on the team. Um, I, I, I love that. Arti, go. Oh yeah. I, I just had a question. Uh, Balaji, uh, since you're here, I know you have really strong viewpoints on this and I loved your podcast with Tim Ferriss too. I think, uh, for me, I wanted to ask you about future of crypto. And I know that's as like wide open as possible intentionally. So, Specifically for India, what's your vision there? What do you see as a future? Talk to us about it. Like Balaji has a fantastic yeah. post on this, you know, which yeah. you should absolutely go read if you haven't. And I know it's kind of caused quite the stir in India, but I just want to kind of plug that. But Balaji, yeah, explain, because I think the, your viewpoints in India are super fascinating. Yeah, so, you know, the thing is that Indians have been into gold for a long time, right? Like every yeah. Indian wedding is all about gold. Indians get gold. So Indians should get digital gold. You know, Arthi Suram, you know, I'm sure your wedding had a lot of gold. Or, or at least <laughs> you, you, your parents probably won't. Yes, it did. Yeah. And, and so, so in that sense, we sort of intrinsically get, and of course, gold is common in many cultures, but we sort of intrinsically get the cash and carry aspect of gold and why it's important to have money outside the state and all that type of stuff. Um, but, you know, in the modern era, 
I think what hadn't been done is for people to make, I don't know, the intellectual case for crypto. And so over the past few months, when you know, there are rumors of a second ban or whatever coming out, I've written a series of essays, why India should buy Bitcoin, how India legalizes crypto, how India can win-win, and also the one that's pinned at the top of my Twitter right now, which is add crypto to India stack. And you know, I think the reason this is important is, I mean, if we can add crypto to India stack, what is India stack, by the way? It is a set of APIs that is pretty impressive for payments and identity and so on that um, works for essentially you mm-hmm. know, million, yep. hundreds of millions of Indians, right? Most people in the world don't know about it, but it's like as if Stripe was kind of run by the U.S. government in some ways, right? Yeah. Um, though it's not an official government thing. It is a, it's like a nonprofit that works yep. close to the government, but let's say it's quasi-official, right? So India Stack... Uh, works amazingly for domestic stuff within India. Um, But of course, it's an international economy now. So what about international payments? And so given that um, there's a lot of concern about deplatforming and unbanking and, you know, Chinese surveillance and American tech companies in India, crypto actually gives a really interesting third way solution, neither American nor Chinese, but like international Mm -hmm. neutral rails, right? And so that's basically what I've been writing about and talking about. And I think it's gotten a fair amount of traction. Importantly, just last week, Nandan Nilakani, mm-hmm. who's a very big figure in India, um, you know, you, you guys Former CEO of uh, Infosys, which is an iconic Indian tech company. Yes. And he also funded a lot of the India stack infrastructure when people mm-hmm. didn't believe in that, right? Like, you know, it was something where he made, you know, personal bet on things like yep. Author and so on with his reputation, the, the identity system for India. And now he's one of the most respected, you know, folks. It's as if, you know, sort of like Elon in some ways, but as if SpaceX was like Stripe or payments infrastructure, you know, it's, kind of, it's sort of like that. And so he came out and he, you know, RT'd a post that, uh, I collaborated on with the um, India Stack people that talked about how you know there's there's all this growth in India, all these young people. They're now on the internet. It's this amazing mm-hmm. growth market. They need capital, and there's hundreds of billions of capital that they need, and there's trillions of dollars in the crypto economy. So let's right. put those right. together, right? And just like an Indian can now access millions of sources of information with the internet, they should be able to access millions of sources of capital with crypto, um, and do that directly from their phones. So that. anyway, that, that's what I wrote about. I love that. Um, I highly recommend people go check out that post. And I know it quite it got quite you know, got quite a reaction among uh, a lot of the Indian tech and also the government community in India, which doesn't happen. Um, Fred, I want to go to you a bit. Uh, you know, I was watching you this morning, and one of the things you said was how some of the things that you folks thought were important, like getting you know billion dollar brands to get them to accept payments in crypto, wasn't as interesting in retrospect. But what was actually interesting or things like DeFi and NFT. So could you talk about what in retrospect wasn't super interesting? And also looking to the future, what are the use cases that get you excited? Yeah, so I think one of the um, one of the truisms about new technologies is the most important things that come out of new technologies are uniquely enabled by them. They're things that aren't possible in the current world because before the new technology came about, you simply couldn't do them. Um, and this is very true of crypto. Um, when we started Coinbase in 2012, uh, Bitcoin was really just this idea of digital money, and that was kind of it. And then, of course, there's this question of, okay, like, what do you do with digital money? Um, the two obvious things were invest it and use it for payments. Um, the invest in it part has worked uh, extremely well. Bitcoin today is still um, kind of known as digital gold. And that store of value use case for a whole variety 
of structural reasons works really well. Um, the thing that didn't go so well was the payments thing. And I think the, the lesson was online payments were already okay. Um, and, you know, we, as you mentioned, we kind of went and tried to sign up all these big online retailers to accept uh, Bitcoin uh, as, a, as a form of payment. And it turns out like nobody really has Bitcoin. And even if they have Bitcoin, it's way more annoying to use it than just like Stripe checkout. Um, so we put all this effort into this in 2014, uh, succeeded in our goal in signing a bunch of people up and nothing happened. Um, and then, you know, I think if you fast forward in the present, um, there was always this idea that crypto could be more than just digital money. Um, but that was always a very ethereal idea, no pun intended, um, <laughs> in until the last three years, where all of a sudden, um, you know, you, you had Ethereum come on, uh, come on the block um, in 2016, and that opened up this idea that uh, blockchains could be programmable and you could build an application on a blockchain, not just send and receive money. Um, so that opened up this whole design space, um, which I think we're still, you know, 1% into exploring. The two big things that have come out of that, which are extremely crypto native, are number one, DeFi. It's a fancy way of saying um, very simple financial applications, uh, things like trading and lending, where you don't need a centralized exchange um, or lender, you just need some code on a blockchain and a bunch of people can put their money in it. Um, and uh, just with some code, borrow against their own money, other people's money, trade against other people's assets. It's pretty magical. Um, I think people greatly underestimate the impact of this. I think in 40 years, this is going to be uh, a significant portion, if not the majority of the global financial system. And then, um, and then on the NFT front, I mean, that's sort of the bleeding edge of, if you think about crypto in three stages, number one, new digital money, number two, new financial system, number three, new internet application platform. NFTs are kind of the bleeding edge of the last category where all of a sudden people can um, own digital media for the first time. Obviously, copyright law is kind of incompatible with the internet, if you really think about it. Um, and I think we'll see a whole re-architecting of the internet and internet applications around that. Um, and that is like super, super early. I, I love this theme of, uh, thanks for the, I, I love this theme today, which I think all of you have emphasized is that, you know, today in some ways is just the beginning. Uh, it's kind of like a marker for something, which is the beginning in many ways. So I love that theme. Uh, I think Dan Romero, you know, has this tweet over the years, which he rolls out about, you know, how he has always thought he was late to crypto and that is never true. I Dan, stole that from Mark, to be fair. He said he was late to the internet, so. Yeah, <laughs> awesome. Uh, I think one lesson from tonight is you're not late to the internet or you're not late to crypto. Um, Katie, I want to go to you. Um, you know, today is obviously uh, a momentous day, uh, but looking forward, what gets you excited about crypto and Coinbase? I think Coinbase is really well positioned to capitalize on things like NFTs in the NFT space. I mean, I saw that Devin Finzer who's the co-founder of OpenSea, uh, joined the conversation tonight. Yeah. And I think what they're doing is really exciting. And like I said, I think Coinbase, because it's a crypto first company, is really well positioned um, for things like DeFi and NFTs. So those are just some of the things that get me excited. And then, of course, the most exciting of all is what applications do we not yet know about? 
right? Because what new behaviors don't we know about? I remember Bology. Bology, you'll remember one of those board strategy offsites we had um, yes, a one? few years ago. Uh, well, I was thinking actually of the one that was um, uh, at Barry Schuler's. And, and I remember, Balaji, you started talking about staking and baking and the new verbs of the new crypto verbs, you know, that we're all going to be using. This was a couple of years ago. And these yeah, are the verbs. The verbs of, of the crypto yep. economy. Yep. Yeah. And, and Balaji had a whole presentation on you know, nouns and verbs of the crypto economy. And it was really mind blowing. It's like, what's next? What other behaviors are there? So now we, we've seen DeFi, we've seen NFTs, but like, what's next? Those are just some of the things. That's I love great. that. By the way, I'm also picturing Balaji at a multi-day offsite and how that experience must be. Uh, you know, that <laughs> it's must amazing. Be very <laughs> we we always limited Balaji to one-day offsites. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> never, never never find yourself alone in a room with Balaji. Otherwise, you're gonna wake up an hour and a half later with no lights on and 50 <laughs> incognito browser tabs, half of them <laughs> with obscure facts of the Russian Revolution. Dan, how many times has Balaji opened up his browser while talking to you, pulled up a Wikipedia page to show off an historical incident, and then kind of moved along? Oh, he's the world's true. best at opening Chrome tag, tag, tabs while talking to you. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty remarkable. Balaji can actually think and continue to talk at his normal pace, which is incredibly rapid, while opening Chrome tabs to reference the things he's talking about. I've never seen anybody be able to do that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, what speed? I, I just want to know what is the max speed that anyone could have put on your the three and a half hours? Because Balaji was three and a half hours. The Tim Ferriss podcast. Did anyone I mean, most, was anyone able to speed it up? Most podcasts I listen at two x, but the, that one I had Balaji. I listened at one x. Is that's the most I can do? Oh man. Well, I I I I'm just trying to give everybody the most efficient information and take. Thank you. That's Richard. great. That's great. Uh, Brian, I have uh, one question to you uh, to wrap it up. You know, Balaji's talked about uh, future of crypto, especially in India. I thought that was really great. We're already seeing a lot of tweets about it. Uh, Brian, you said, you know, just like Shuramit just mentioned, you said we are just at the beginning. Uh, what, from your vantage point, especially after today, like momentous day for all of crypto, what do you think the future looks like? Yeah, well, you know, Fred laid out a great framework earlier, crypto as money, crypto as financial, you know, new financial system, and then crypto as a new internet application platform. And I think about, you know, what what are the big unlocks that actually get us to that third phase? We're yeah. starting to see it a little bit. There's some some new applications coming out. NFTs are, are doing well right now. But I think we'll have an even bigger unlock when a few things happen. And it, it kind of will parallel the internet probably, right? So I've been thinking a lot about how do we scale blockchains? I think this is a really underestimated aspect. Um, you know, the fees are way too high, right? On Ethereum right now, we're seeing the adoption of things like Binance Smart Chain, which has much higher throughput, mm -hmm. but it's less it's less decentralized, right? Like a you know, majority of the BNB tokens, the governance tokens, are controlled by one company, which is not great as a foundation for the future of the internet. And so, how do we get these blockchains to scale? I think it'll be on the order of moving the internet from dial-up to broadband in terms of the kind of capabilities it can unlock. And then similarly, um, again, another internet analogy, you know, we had IP addresses and then we got the d domain name system. Um, so you could type in a human readable name and crypto needs that too. We've got the Ethereum name system. Um, instead of sending, you know, people send crypto to these Ethereum addresses or Bitcoin addresses that have long random characters. Um, we want to be able to send the human readable stuff and decentralized identity is, is probably another big unlock to get working. 
Um, there's privacy in there as well. Like we'd similar to the internet getting HTTPS, we'd probably want to get um, the ability to send private transactions. And there are private privacy tokens and coins, but they're not all, we, we haven't gotten the trifecta, kind of all of these things like a scalable blockchain with a good name system that also has privacy and just get like the developer consolidation all around it. And so I think that's, once we can get that, you'll see this um, explosion, kind of Cambrian explosion of new third-party applications um, that could be in all kinds of categories like social media or gaming or identity. Um, they could be layer one solutions. Also layer two solutions are good. So how do we help that happen? Maybe Coinbase can help in some way. I love this. I love this. I think that's such a great note. Um, I want to wrap up today because I think it's been, this has been an amazing conversation. But on, I want to kind of, Brian, I want one short answer from you to wrap up. And I think this is going back to the, go to the very beginning. We started off asking, you know, how we first ever heard of Bitcoin. So here we are over a decade later. Let's say Satoshi Nakamoto, uh, he, she, they, it are listening to the show at some point in time. What would you want to tell them? I mean, mad respect. Um, you, <laughs> whoever you are, you, I mean, we're, we're really Coinbase is kind of standing on the shoulders of giants here. You know, I, frankly, I read that white paper and I don't think I'm smart enough to have come up with that kind of original computer science breakthrough. I feel lucky that I had just enough knowledge to be able to read it. And because of my life experiences, maybe understand some of the potential in it. And then I was able to kind of go build, you know, a reasonably good application and things like that. But I, I don't think I could have come up with that research uh, breakthrough on my own. The, the world really needs, you know, scientists who do this kind of stuff. You know, the Einsteins of the world are all, all the favorite examples. But the, the world also needs people, I guess, who can kind of bridge the divide between a scientific breakthrough and a commercialization, like a new product. And um, anyway, I'm just very grateful that that whoever Satoshi is decided to put that out there in the world. It, it changed my life. And I think the lives of basically everybody on the planet in the future as the crypto economy grows. So thank you. That's great. Uh, thank you. I don't think we can pick a better note to end on. So uh, I want to, okay, this has been probably one of our most uh, memorable episodes that we have done. And I want to thank everybody. I want to thank, you know, this has been, you know, I don't think we had a room, you know, which has grown to over 5,000 and kept growing as the show has gone on. So all of you in the room, and on Twitter, on text, thank you so much for listening in. I want to thank all of our guests. Uh, I want to thank, uh, you know, obviously my co-host, Arthi, uh, uh, Stephen, and, uh, you know, the folks from um, Andy's Norwich, uh, Mark and Katie, uh, you know, Gary, Dan, Balaji, and definitely, obviously, uh, Fred and Brian. Uh, thank you so much. This was such an amazing, uh, uh, um, you know, show. And I also want to thank you folks for uh, giving us the privilege of hosting you on uh, what has definitely been a momentous but also a very, very long day. So thank you again. And, you know, hope you all go get some sleep and maybe some alcohol uh, um, and, you know, um, and, you know, before you get back to work. So to play us out, as you folks know, we have a tradition. We try and play a song that is connected to the theme of the episode or one of the people on the show. And today we are one of those rare times when somebody on the show has actually made a song um, and it's actually going to be an, N it's actually an NFT. So Brian um, has, you know, uh, has a song out on collaboration and, you know, you folks should check out his Twitter. He has a link to it. Uh, it's called Never Give Up. Uh, it's an NFT, which you can go place a bid on. And here it is to close out the episode.
Good night, everybody. This has been amazing.